Hey everyone, I'm Nate Vinio, and this is Something to Gnaw On, a short podcast for the Christian with a short attention span or just short on time, designed to give you something to mentally or spiritually chew on throughout your day, a Bible study in bite-sized form, if you will. This episode is The Primary Tool of Parenting. Father's Day, 1997, Missoula, Montana. I walked into church with my six-month-old girl smiling inside her carrier. I had it hooked in the crook of my elbow and grinned as I walked in. I stepped up to the nursery door, handed her off to a bunch of girls ooing and aahing over her cuteness, and I bailed out for the sanctuary and the main service. I don't know if you've ever been to one of those churches that have a screen where your number pops up and if your child's needing attention in the nursery or not, but this church had one such system. And you're assigned a number at drop-off, and if you see that number in red on the screen, well, your child is needing you, or the workers are needing you to come and take your child. As an odd side note, About four to five years earlier, I sat in that church as a high school student on a Sunday night, bemoaning the fact that I had to go to church on a Sunday night instead of watching the Chicago Bulls playoff game. We didn't have iPhones or smartphones back then to watch the games during the sermon, so one of my friends set up a TV in the nursery room and used that digital baby number system to flash the scores to the congregation during the pastor's sermon in clear red digits. Every couple of minutes, the numbers would flash. 9688, 9990, 9992, etc., etc., etc. Thank you very much, Travis Larson. Much appreciated. Anyhow, that was the last time I really paid any attention to the digits until this particular Father's Day. I made my way to the nursery and arrived to find a few other parents, a few extra children's workers, and my dad, who was one of the pastors at the church at the time, huddled around a couple of kids, mine being one of them. My kiddo had a cloth over her nose and face and wasn't crying anymore, but had obviously shed a few tears. When they removed the cloth, I could see the mess, the bloody mess of a nose. When the dust settled on the situation, I found out that the nursery workers had combined several age groups, and one of the three- to four-year-olds with a biting problem had decided to take it upon herself to separate my daughter's nose from her pretty little face. And she managed to draw blood in several locations in her determination before being separated by one of the workers. It was a mess. There was the blood. There were the nursery workers standing by, ashamed that this had happened on their watch. There were the parents of the offending girl standing with their daughter, who were wondering what amount of money for plastic surgery was be necessary to fix this. There was my dad, the pastor who had also been a mentor to this other couple, as well as the grandfather to this bloody-nosed kid. And then there's me and my daughter. There was all the basic first aid, the shock, the apologies, the promises, the drama, the incident reports, and all that come with a situation like that. And honestly... For the most part, it was a blur. We got her cleaned up, put in her carrier, and as I walked out of the church, a news crew from the local network station set their eyes on me as I walked by and suckered me into a quick question slice of life interview. I just prayed they wouldn't get a video of her swollen red nose. I have no recollection of what I said. I just remembered the oddity of the moment. Being targeted as a father who should be a protector 
holding his child who's been bloodied and still unsure if plastic surgery will be needed, yet somehow bragging about the joys of fatherhood. The idea of permanent facial disfigurement weighed on me. In retrospect, this may have been the first time I prayed deeply for her well-being. And it certainly wouldn't be the last. In the end, though, there was no permanent damage. No plastic surgery was necessary, and she's grown up to become a beautiful and accomplished young woman. It's amazing how being a parent will drive you to pray. When you realize how little control you have over life, and at the same time you're well acquainted with the level of responsibility you've been given, prayer for your children is the primary tool. I now have four children, and all four have reinforced this in different ways, but nonetheless, the primary tool in parenting is prayer. The reality is that your kids, whether young or old, whether six months or six decades old, will spend more time away from you than with you. You cannot physically protect them through the entirety of their life, but you can prepare them, and you can pray for them. Both are powerful, and both are productive. Have you ever thought about Moses' parents? Not much is said of them. If you take the account in Exodus chapter 2, you find that they're from the same tribe of Levi. In Exodus chapter 6, verse 20, you find his name is Amram, and her name is Jochebed, and she is, oddly, Amram's aunt. Okay, that's weird, I realize. And it's later outlawed, but it's in the book. So there you have it. Not only is it in the book, but they are on a very short list of important people in Hebrews chapter 11's Hall of Faith. And then that's all you hear about Amram. As far as Jochebed is concerned, she carries the boy to term and gives birth in a relatively quick and painless manner, so as not to draw any attention, as there was an edict from Pharaoh to kill all male children. In addition to Exodus 1 and 2, See the show notes for references in Josephus' Antiquities of the Jews, book 2. Not only does she carry the child in relative obscurity, she nurses him for the first few months without drawing attention to herself. And if you have kids, you realize this is nothing short of a miracle. You cannot control these kiddos when they cry. And eventually, they put the boy in a basket and send him on his first rafting trip without a life vest. A Hail Mary attempt to save his life. And it works. Not only does a plan work, but in a divinely orchestrated fashion, Jochebed ends up being summoned to nurse the baby until he's weaned and is then raised by Pharaoh's daughter. Jochebed, and presumably Amram, are given precious time to safely invest in the child's life, despite the kill order that's in effect. And this is the last we hear of Jochebed. I don't know about you, but I wonder what those short years were filled with. Filled with prayers, tears, fears, numbness, teaching. How would you have spent that time? I want to step back and highlight a few things about this episode in history. Josephus and his work called Antiquities of the Jews, Book 2, will fill in some gaps from Jewish tradition. 
Remember that Josephus' record of history is for Roman Emperor Flavius Vespasian, and it definitely has a degree of bias. But there are some events that simply happened, and bias or not, really bring a level of context to the Exodus story that is necessary. In Antiquities of the Jews, Book 2, Chapter 9, Verses 1 through 4, Josephus paints a picture of the Egyptians becoming lazy and overly dependent on the Jews' slave labor for their lavish lifestyle. At the same time, they recognize that the number of Jews that it takes to provide this lifestyle is also a number necessary to overthrow them. This is the basic angst leading up to the birth of Moses. In Exodus chapter 2, it looks as if the killing of young males is strictly a population control issue. And if you owned a massive farm being overrun by deer, what would you do? If a choice had to be made between male and female, the females would be hunted to control population, not the males. If you need slave labor, you need the males, not the females. So why does Pharaoh set out to kill the newborn males and not even think about the older males? Back to Antiquities, Book 2, Chapter 9. Verse 2, Josephus quotes Egypt's sacred scribes who prophesy that someone will be born among the Hebrews that, quote, would bring the Egyptian dominion low and would raise the Israelites, that he would excel all men in virtue and obtain a glory that would be remembered through the ages, end quote. Josephus states that it's from this standpoint that Pharaoh issues the edict to kill all males born at this time and the entire families of those who would try to save them. This is the fear that drives Pharaoh, that a Hebrew slave would overthrow him. This was the world that Amram and Jochebed brought Moses into, and by preserving his life, they put their lives and the lives of Aaron and Miriam in jeopardy. And the irony of it all is that the one prophesied to bring down Egyptian dominion is brought up in the safety of Pharaoh's court. And to read the rest of Josephus' account of Moses, it becomes clear that his Hebrew roots are clear from the beginning, and also a source of contention between Pharaoh and his council and his fortune tellers. But there seems to be a connection between him and his daughter, that keeps him from killing Moses despite the continued recommendations of his counselors. His counselors eventually encouraged Moses being put into battle to fight what had been a losing battle against the Ethiopians, and their hope was that he would be killed. But he was triumphant, which deepened the animosity in the royal court. This was the life Moses' parents had entrusted him to. Make no mistake about it, God had him set apart from the beginning, but can you imagine being the parent? Bringing a child into a culture that would rather destroy the family than let that one child live? Letting your child be raised in your enemy's court? Imagine with me for a moment. Imagine you're a Jew living in World War II Poland, and the only opportunity for your four-year-old child to live is to entrust his care to a girl whose father just so happens to be named Adolf Hitler, if he even had kids. 
to be brought up in a palace where the architectural plans were being drawn up for the extermination of your people. And that is pretty close to what's going on with Moses. So how'd they do it? How'd they keep their sanity for 40 years as Moses lived in Pharaoh's court? Exodus 6 tells us that Amram lived to the age of 137, so he lived through this whole mess. How'd he do it? I submit to you that it was through prayer. Josephus captures another perspective in Book 2, Chapter 9, Verses 3 and 4. Here are five short excerpts. 1. A man whose name was Amram, was one of the nobler sort of Hebrews, was afraid for his whole nation, lest it should fail by the want of young men to be brought up hereafter. 2. He betook himself to prayer to God, and entreated him to have compassion on those men who had no wise transgressed the law of his worship, and to afford them deliverances from the miseries, and to render abortive the enemy's hopes of the destruction of their nation. 3. Accordingly, God had mercy on him, and was moved by his supplications. He stood with him in his sleep and exhorted him not to despair. In a vision, then, God retraces his faithfulness to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 4. Eventually, Amram reaches this conclusion. He determined rather to entrust the safety and the care of the child to God than to depend on his own concealment. And five. And here is how Josephus summarizes this episode with Amram and Jochebed for Vespasian. Quote, Where God demonstrated that human wisdom was nothing, but that supreme being is able to do whatever he pleases, that those, the Egyptians, who, in order to secure their own safety, condemn others, the Hebrews, to destruction and use great endeavors about it, fail of their purpose, but that others are in surprising manner preserved, obtaining a prosperous condition almost from the very midst of their calamities, those, I mean, whose danger arise by appointment of God. And indeed, such a providence was exercised in the case of this child as shown by the power of God. God clearly answers Amram's prayer. We sometimes read the most common verses of the Bible with a cavalier or calloused attitude. One of the most basic passages on prayer comes from Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Quote, Do not worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything telling God what you need and thank Him for all He has done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Can we apply this to the most extreme situations, like Amram and Jochebed, as well as the most basic? As a parent, I can't imagine anything much more difficult than what Amram and Jochebed had to deal with. For 40 years, they lived like that. I can only imagine, if Amram prayed like he did at the beginning, how did he pray over the next 40 years? 
Your kids will give you every opportunity to pray about everything. Someone's going to bite their nose in the nursery or bloody their nose on the playground or break their nose in a basketball game or break their heart in a relationship. And I hate to say it, but some of us are going to see some pretty dark days with our kids. And it's going to break your heart to see. The heartaches of life will come. In various fashions, you will feel fear, anxiety, pain. But that's not the question. The question is, can you pray about everything? Can you pray about all of that? Like Amram and Jochebed, can you petition God and intercede for your kids, however intense the situation is? And I believe we can. And I believe our kids need us to cry out in prayer more than ever before. And I'd like to leave you with this blessing, similar to what Josephus said of Amram, and if I may paraphrase slightly, I say this blessing over you. May God have mercy on you and your kids, because he is moved by your prayers. And may he stand by you and exhort you not to despair. I'm Nate Vinio, and this has been Something to Gnaw. Until next week, move heaven with your prayers.